I'm Will Hansen and welcome to the Experts in the Room podcast, brought to you by Extreme Push. In this series, we chat to some of the leading minds working in the customer experience, retention and data space in some of the most competitive and fastest growing industries in the world. In this episode, Continuous Conversations, I spoke to CRM and loyalty specialist Nicola Fox. Nicola has worked in retail marketing for over 20 years for some of the UK's biggest brands and shared some awesome insights with us on best practice in customer experience and engagement. Delighted to have you on the podcast today, Nicola. Thanks for coming on board. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, I think the best way to do the introductions um, for your background, and I think people will be massively surprised probably how they've been influenced and touched by probably some of the campaigns you've had a hand with, um, considering some of the brands that you've worked with in the UK. Uh, might be just to give us a little bit of a rundown on your background working with both Holland and Barrett and Misguided, and probably just some general background on, on yourself as a CRM and loyalty expert. So, um, fire away on giving us the two-minute Nicola in introduction. <laughs> no worries. Um, yeah, so I um, well, I've worked in retail for over twenty years, um, and I've specialised in CRM and loyalty in the last eleven. Um, and you're right that that sort of um, plunge into into loyalty was at Holland and Barrett. Um, I'd been there a few years, but um, they were a kind of a brand at the time that had big high street presence. Um, lots of data about the number of pots of vitamins and supplements that they sold, but not a lot of, of customer data. And they wanted to um, understand a bit more about that. There's obviously a huge benefit for that in the health uh, in the healthcare industry. So um, I launched their first and their current um, loyalty program, customer loyalty program. Um, and it was from then on, really, that I started to uh, develop that application into CRM, into email marketing, digital marketing. Um, I left Holland and Barrett, went to Misguided, where I did a, a sort of a, a similar um, evolution, really. Kind of, they had, they actually had the opposite problem. They um, had lots of data, um, at, but just weren't sort of structuring it and using it very well. And so um, there, it was more about kind of making that data part of our day to day lives. So. Yeah, Holland and Barrett and Misguided were big brands within my career history and really kind of defined what I do now um, as, a, as a freelance um, CRM and, and loyalty expert. Um, because it was actually in exploring both of those brands that I realised just how important customer experience was within loyalty as a thing. Um, and also the the sort of change management. How do we get our teams to adopt um, that kind of approach of making experiences great so that customers love us? Um, and so now I work freelance with agencies, but also retail teams um, to make that strategy happen. Because I, I know that I definitely felt in role within brands that, you know, I, I was often an executor but not always able to kind of make those big 500 slide strategy documents actually happen it's like really frustrating you know you kind of you have all of these great ideas you have lots of sessions about it but then something's stopping you from actually making it happen so um, I now work freelance I work with retail teams to make that happen and really focusing in on that change management what does it take for our teams for our businesses for our organizations to put this stuff in in place 
Yeah, I, I really want to pull on that thread there around change management and, and just something that you've said there really strikes me as interesting. Um, are you finding as a freelancer now that you're having more influence on being able to take that strategic view because you're not being pulled into other things? Is that why is that why you're finding that? Or is it is it just because you're able to step outside of the organization and try and influence change that way? Um, probably a combination of both. I think when you are in role, when you are working within an organization, there are always other demands on your on your time. Um, we've all probably presided over that project list that never gets done because you're too busy with the day to day. So yeah. being freelance, being con- in a consultative um, format, you know, I I find that actually I have got that ability to focus in on on those things that you don't always get to do when you're focusing on a day job as well. Um, but I think it's also about having that um, very clear remit that very you know being in lane and staying in lane and being there to make sure that change management and the adoption of the change that you're doing actually happens um i think that is also um you know part of of the success and yeah of course some of that does come with the fact that i'm my own person i'm not kind of necessarily um influenced so directly by what the brands are but you know naturally as any consultant will know you've got to you've got to fit into the culture and yeah. you've got to understand and appreciate that culture so yeah a bit of a combination of both great and and so harking back to holland and barrett because i think that that's a really good example of a massive brand with huge reach and huge history as well um having to navigate internally within a business to be able to drive something as new and as fancy i'm sure at the time 10 years ago um as a loyalty program driven by data and and built around a customer experience what were some of the challenges and some of the opportunities i imagine that came from trying to build out that program with a brand like that yeah so i mean holland and barrett was um well, and still is a very successful brand um, in terms of product. They really know what they're doing. Um, and there wasn't an awful lot that you could teach that group of people about what they were selling. Um, but as I alluded to earlier, yeah. the gap that they had was knowing, well, who's buying this stuff and why are they buying it? Because, you know, anybody who's been in a Holland Barrett store will see that there's like, you know, thousands and thousands of SKUs. Most of them you can't even pronounce, let alone know what they actually do. And the restrictions within the industry mean that you can't be open um, about that with customers. So, um, you know, they really had this gap of who's buying this stuff? What are they using it for? And what opportunities does that give us in terms of sales? Because, Anybody can put pots on a shelf and sell it at 50% off, but it's in the understanding of why customers are choosing you, why customers are choosing certain products that then kind of leverages your ability to improve retention, reduce churn, and really kind of make customers feel like that, you know, that, that you're the brand for them. It's not just a kind of a race to the bottom on price. And so what you know, on a very basic level, that loyalty program was what you, you know, what an A-level student doing, you know, with a yeah. slight interest in marketing would come up with, okay? But it's it's less about that. It's less about what the execution was because we just needed something that was very accessible for retail customers, something that everybody could adopt, everybody could understand, you know, nothing too clever. But actually what it did for the business was start to give us the ability to create things like um, product segmentations, profitability segmentations. 
so that rather than talking to everybody about everything and hoping that they might understand and and, uh, sort of connect with it, we were then able to sort of say, well, this group of people are buying into this group of products and are behaving like this, whereas this group of people are buying into this group of products and behaving like this. So there's differences in spend, in repeat purchase, in retention, all sorts of things, and then start to apply that across your marketing whether that's about, you know, personalization, which was a big, a big driver at the time. Um, And I think personalization still is today. It's it's still the thing that everyone wants to get right. How am I more relevant to the people that I'm talking about? But also underneath that, there were things that really helped the business change. So they were going through a period of wanting to kind of reinvent some of their brands, particularly in kind of um, high city footfall stores, you know, how do we look different? How do we grow up? How do we become more, um, you know, more uh, relevant to people who are catching on to things like plant-based and, you know, eat eating well and, and looking after myself? And so that data was also beneficial to merchandising, to uh, buying teams in terms of telling them what's selling where and what types of customers are going into the different stores so that your range and space plans can change and all that kind of thing. So it had a benefit a benefit in terms of just customer understanding, but it also then allowed us to kind of grow our uh, digital strategies. But then also, you know, really important for a very traditional retailer, high street retailer, was to give them something as well that they could use from that data. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's so interesting and and it's I think there will be listeners out there that range from smaller brands in retail always all the way up to these enterprise size brands and would be surprised that a giant enterprise brand like Holland and Barrett might be having the same troubles that they're having with, mm. which is, you know, yeah. harnessing your data, being able to do proper segmentation and, and essentially monetize what you know about your customers and make sure that you're driving the right products to them. You talk about the race to the bottom and I, I know with your fast fashion background with misguided um, I can't help myself but bring that up. Um, how how different a business was misguided in the way that they looked at their segmentation and their data? Um, were they looking at it um, from the same type of perspective where they're trying to understand how best to engage with their customers or was it was it more driven around how they could shift stock, how they could move quickly? Like they have a very different business model, I imagine, from Holland and Barrett in the way that they're trying to position their brand. Um probably relevant given 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 their performance this year i think and and what's kind of gone on in fast fashion in the uk particularly so it'd be interesting to get your perspective on that yeah yeah massive changes there and um you can't talk about misguided or at least you can't have worked at misguided and now talk about it without a sense of loss really because um something that was just so great and so exciting and um engaging to work with you know I I always kind of say it was not in a bad way because we were careless but you know it was like a a playground you know you were allowed to do things you were allowed to take risk and I I suppose the the differences that I would draw between Holland and Barrett and Misguided was that you know when you move from something which is very high street focused very traditional to something which is pure play and exciting and innovative um, as a marketeer and anybody slightly touching the sort of tech side, it's it's a fantastic, exciting place to be. You can try stuff. You can, um, you know, you can experiment. Um, and you know, it was it was a fantastic experience. Um, but yeah, I mean, some some similarities between Holland and Barrett and Misguided in that um, 
they weren't using data to the best of their yeah. ability. But the difference was, you know, Holland and Barrett had nothing misguided was swimming in the stuff. You know, we had so much data from lots of different places. Um, but actually, it, it was, it had fallen into the, the same pattern as many kind of fast growing um, new brands in that things were growing faster than you'd actually put the infrastructure in for. So when I joined, it was 2016. Um, they weren't short of data, but they were short on how to use it and the technology and the infrastructure to, to make that happen. And that's really the, the change that I and you know the, the IT team that were involved uh, put in place. So it was really saying, okay, what kind of data do we want? How do we want to be able to access, access this? Who needs to access it? And then what are we gonna need to make that happen? Um, and I suppose it kind of leads into what my, my current thinking is really on this. And it, it's really informed where I sit now in that it is partly, you know, m- making data part of your day to day decision making and process and implementation is really about two key, key things. Have you got the right technology to allow you to do stuff? Because if you can't, your teams will be stuck in, you know, 10 years ago where it's really, really hard work to get anything off the ground. So you need the right technology, but you also need the culture, the culture to make it happen. If you're lacking in either of those two areas, then your ROI is going to be slow because you're either going to have a team of people who can't use a thing or you're not going to have the right technology to make it happen. I, I think that's really informative talking about the the alignment between culture and technology. Now, obviously, coming from a technology company, it's something that I'm talking about daily um, with, with managers like yourselves that are trying to manage change. Where do you stand on on technology as a driver, um, particularly, I think, around brands coming into it and they have a plethora of choices with partners that they can choose from at the moment um, that'll tick off pretty much most of their problems. Um, I'm, I'm firmly of the opinion that the build or buy argument has shifted a little bit um, and probably depends on the business type that we're talking about. But where do you stand on that in in looking at your tech stacks when you come into these types of brands or when you're freelancing and and talking about what is needed, what's superfluous, um, what is, what's the best way to kind of approach building a stack like that? I think that'd be really cool to get your insights into that given, given you've built a couple from scratch and you've obviously worked with plenty of partners in the past before too. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I came into uh, CRM and loyalty and uh, kind of using data within marketing um, with no background in technology. So I, I don't sit here as a technology expert yeah. and everything that I know about the technologies that marketing teams can use is is learned from being involved in processes to select it and to use it and, and being exposed you know, through partnerships with agencies. Um, and so I suppose what I what I always kind of say is that, you know, it's not about selecting technology based on reputation or um, the the kind of newest cutting edge, you know, um, functionality. It's about really understanding two core things. What do our customers need and what does our business need to make it happen? And that's, I suppose, the part as the marketeer, as the change management, um, you know, consultant that I would always get teams to really nail down on. 
Because if you're meeting suppliers who are showing you products, platforms, technology, capabilities, and you don't actually know what your, what difference you want to make to your customers' lives through this technology, then you're not going to pick the best one for you. And also, you've got to kind of have a really good understanding of how you operate as a business. It's the culture element. I'm not saying that um, technology shouldn't drive that culture change, but equally... If you adopt technology that is just never going to work with the processes, never going to kind of support how teams and departments work together and solve those those problems that you're having, then again, you're picking the wrong one. So it, it is about requirements. It's about need. But you've got to kind of look at it from what do I want to be able to do for my customer that I'm not doing today? And what do I need from this platform slash technology provider and the, you know the people that you meet across the table are important right i mean yeah. you know it's it's you don't make the whole decision based on that but can i work with these people can i rely on them you know they're going to be an extension of my team whilst i adopt the use of this of this platform so can i work with these people have they got my back have they got the same vision the same way of working that that we do within the organization um, and if you end up knowing exactly what you want to deliver for your customer and exactly how that technology needs to fit around the way that you do your business, then that's a good start place, I, I think, in, in making your selection. You're giving the 101 to the sellers there listening on the call on how to talk to a CRM change manager and understand their business and their customer needs um, to be able to sell your platform. So I think that's hugely important um, from yeah. that side uh, so that no, it's, it's some great tips. And I think, you know, like, like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, these things were few and far between. You know, the, the, the best that an email marketer could really hope for was that they were going to be able to do some sort of dynamic content, but it would still probably go to everybody. And any chance of personalization or targeting was really hard fought for. Um, and so when you were looking at technology platforms back then, everything was wow. But now there are many there are many platforms that are all doing the same thing. So it has to come down to how well does this fit within my organization and how well does this help me achieve what I want to achieve? Stands to reason, right? Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I, I think I think it's something that that good partners do with each other as well as understand each other's businesses and how to drive that forward. Um Touching on touching on customer because you've mentioned the word about a hundred times today. I think this is a huge point, being customer centric and customer focused. Um, let's drop in the dreaded C word, um, COVID. How much do you think, or how well do you think the retail industry and certain brands have adopted, uh, or sorry, adapted to the challenges that COVID um, has driven with their customers um, in the last few years? Like we've had unprecedented challenges around supply chains and logistics. We've had a drive to digitalization. I know there are statistics out there saying that e-commerce grew um, 20 years in in two years, I think, is some of the statistics going around. What are some of the brands and some of the strategies that you think have worked really well? Um, maybe some of the ones that you think have missed the mark um, or that are falling behind um, in, in this kind of post-COVID world where, where we're looking at a real customer loyalty vacuum is what I would kind of call it, um, where people are very happy to shop around, very happy to find the best deal online and move quite quickly on it. Um, how do you think brands have adopted to that, uh, adapted to that challenge? Well, I, I think certainly um, as 
the kind of COVID impact started to settle um, and things started to get back to some sort of normal, there had to be a correlation between that and the fact that I, along with a lot of my other CRM and loyalty and customer marketing contacts, were getting loads of calls because everybody realised that during that time, and I, and I don't want to make it sound like COVID was like the, the big thing that made everybody realise this. I think it was there. But I think what yeah. COVID did was make us all sharpen our pencil on how well are we executing on what customers want. It's okay us talking ourselves into feeling like we're customer centric, feeling like we're doing the right thing for the customer, feeling like we're solving for them. But actually, it was far too easy not to do that when we had free open markets and people could yeah. go anywhere whenever they wanted. All of a sudden, we had this situation where people were in need. People needed empathy because, you know, I, I always kind of say, you know, a lot of t- a lot of the times people come into your website might have been the first time they interacted with your brand. It might have been the first time they placed an order online and it might have been the first time that they experienced getting something from you and they were choosing you because there was nobody else. You know, they were choosing you because you could deliver and somebody else that they might have chosen couldn't. So it was a distress purchase, a distress situation. And the people who I think really succeeded were the ones who already knew how to solve for customers and were already doing that just part and parcel of every day. And all that they did was they just turned up the volume. The ones that got left behind were the ones who thought that they were doing it, but were actually solving for their business need rather than the customer need. So, you know, they wouldn't necessarily have the kind of infrastructure in place to, um, you know, to improve on their delivery proposition because they'd been doing it to solve the business need rather than the customer need. Um, And so, you know, what we've what we've sort of ended up with afterwards is that, you know, brands have acquired you know, the ones that have done okay have acquired new customers during that period of time and they want to hold on to them, right? Because they, yeah. you know, they've probably had a bit of success. And but what they're doing is they're looking at them and they're going, they don't look anything like my normal customer. They look completely different. They're behaving differently, they're buying different things, they're, you know, it, it's just not what I'm familiar with. And so they've had to kind of really dig deep on, okay, it's not good enough for me to just do what I normally do and my normal customers, you know, do what they do. I've also got to really think about how was it and in what circumstances did I acquire these customers and therefore what role do I play in their lives? Because that's what you've got to keep doing to keep hold of those people. And so, you know, maybe, you know, to to make it very, very simple, it might be that previously delivery... Um, delivery proposition was not a massive thing but now it really is because people you delivered something during covid that people are now thinking that that's just the norm um, and so you kind of got to keep up these things and you know the, the need for that data the need for that insight because actually the longer that you keep them the more you're going to have to know about them to you know to kind of meet their needs and meet their expectations of you as a brand i think what one of the points you just made there is really interesting that push and pull between brands that think that they're customer centric and customer centric in what they're solving for but the pull that comes with all businesses and all marketing managers are probably sitting on the call thinking this it's all good to say we're customer centric but when a cro comes knocking around revenue um, and around, you know, your marketing budgets and your spends being able to stand up and defend 
the activity that you're doing from a customer centric perspective. Um, what have what have been some of your experiences in and around dealing with that? Now I'm getting into the weeds here of some specific stuff around management and probably managing up, but I think it's interesting because um, you know brands that I always seem to see to work are ones that de-silo and decouple their revenue um, out of their different functions. So not having a procurement function that's not talking to their marketing function, that's not talking potentially to their deliveries functions and so on and so forth. The brands that seem to be de-siloed work better uh, in in generality. So is that something that you see um, or have seen in some of the bigger businesses that you've worked with? Um, What are the challenges there that you've found? Yeah, I think um, you've hit the nail on the head, really. I think... um you know, let me let me be clear that I, I'm not somebody who's going to kind of profess that it doesn't matter about making money from this stuff. You know, it, it absolutely does. We're all within digital marketing for performance-related um, reasons. Um, I suppose what what I what I see um, and, and how my kind of opinion has developed over the last sort of 10, 12 years is that whilst we used to get that. Uh, performance from just sending more emails um, or whatever communication it is we now don't get that same return and so actually what we've got to understand is that customers are changing faster than we are changing the way that we communicate with them and so if we don't think about continuous conversations um, and making sure that all of our messages to individuals connect across all of the different channels, then it becomes very detached from a customer's point of view. So performance is driven not just by doing more, but doing what you already do better incrementally every day. And, you know, it's not about when when we talk about customer experience, I, you know, I'm, I'm not pink and fluffy about this you know it's not about just giving people free gifts and making people feel warm and cozy that happens when you do stuff well when you really understand who your customers are the role that you play as a brand in their life and then you do that lot you do that with excellence Um, and for different uh, you know sectors for different industries for different customer groups that role will be different so you've really got to understand what the data is telling you and your, what your customers are feeding back but then do that well you know and, and it might be like the least lovely thing to do for customers but actually that's the role you play in their life and you're doing it well so they're happy and I think what happens then is you start to see that that is rewarded in the the metrics that you're trying to measure for performance in retention we, we always kind of try to look at repeat order rate or, you know, retention rates as an indicator of loyalty. And I, I always pull people back from that and say, look, that is one factor. You know, people reordering with you, people shopping with you again is one factor in amongst lots of different things that are telling you that this customer is loyal. So really kind of look at all those different factions around advocacy, around visit frequency, that kind of thing, because people visiting you are still people, you know, loyal to your brand because they're seeking you to solve their problem. Understand that and then do it with excellence. And then, you know, you do have to push back. I think, you know, this this kind of change, this switch from kind of saying, well, never mind, we'll just lose customers, but we'll bring some more in the front door. It has to change, but it has to kind of change from the top down because you can't just do that from one area of the marketing team. It's got to be kind of all the way down. 
and it, it kind of it, the reason for that is the the point that you made about working in silos. If we continue to manage chat marketing channels and areas of businesses in silos because that's the easiest way for us to organize our teams and our expertise and our skill sets we're missing that opportunity to really make a difference to new customers existing customers high value customers whatever however you want to call them however you want to group them bringing together really skilled people from across your business and then saying, right, how are we going to make the experience for new customers absolutely amazing? All the way from the first time that they hear about us through to, you know, their second or third or fourth order. Um, And once you kind of get people from all areas of your business talking together and planning in that way, that's when the magic happens. And that's when you start to kind of come up with things that really make a difference to customers. Um, and you know over time you will see that in the performance you've just got to be a bit patient yeah patience is the key I love one of the terms you dropped there around you know continuous conversations with your customers but also continuous conversations early uh sorry internally with your brand um one thing that uh that has jumped out at me I've been running the conference circuit over the last few weeks um there was a point made around as CRM managers and and essentially being data scientists, I think is part of what what we've talked about here today. Like understanding your data and being able to to utilize it, that that brands are sometimes forgetting that they're also brands, and and how important going back to your core brand values of what you're offering your customer um, that sets you apart from the other online retailer that's in your space because competition is so fierce at the moment. Um, do you talk a lot about brand within? your CRM um, teams or your loyalty programs and kind of have that at the core of what you drive for for the brands that you're working with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... um, I think we've we've had so much focus... um, the, the, the speed and the rate of change yeah. in e-commerce has, has driven us down this route of just making sure that our checkout journey is brilliant you know, completely barrier-free, complete, completely smooth, completely effortless. And, of course, we've all got Amazon in our minds when we're trying to do that. Yeah. But for me, when I when I think about what my role is, you know, my, very often my role is described as retaining customers, you know, keeping customers with us. That's got nothing to do with getting people through a checkout. It's got nothing to do with conversion, and it's got nothing to do with repeat order rate because that's actually the job of the trading team and the e-commerce team and the CRO team. My job is to make sure that all the way through, um, in whatever whatever touch point the customer has with, um, with our brand, they come away feeling good about it. Even if they didn't enter feeling good about it, they leave yep. feeling good about it. Because you're, you know, you're right, that when we, when we sit down to think about, I want to buy something or I need something, we we are thinking about our needs, but we're also thinking about who can solve those needs. Links back to the, the COVID situation. I'm at home. I need this. I can't get it for myself. Who can bring it to me? And it, it's, it's carried over. It's the same. And so... We have to think about ourselves as brands. We have to think ourselves as, you know, people, you know, groups of people who customers are looking to to solve their problems. And when we do that, when we when we think in that way, what we do for our customers is less about just getting them through a checkout and is more about how does it feel to go through that checkout? 
you know and the, the best physical example i can give you know is, is that kind of adage of, of aldi isn't it yeah. you know i go through aldi checkout and i go through it fast but i don't feel good about it nobody's having fun here so i'm going to go back because it's a necessity but i'm still not having fun and so the moment that somebody steps into that gap of i need stuff with a more fun execution with a more fun experience i'm going to like that more and i think that's that's just always what we've got to kind of bring ourselves back to people have so much choice today they can pick any provider any retailer any brand to service their need so we the the USP is not about what you do and the price you offer but it's about the experience that they have when you do it you you've hit on a hit on a sore point for me there i was uh <laughs> My university job for five years was working on a checkout at Coles Supermarkets in Australia. And so I was part of the change group um, as they stripped out all the checkouts and put in self-checkouts, which are probably my most hated thing in a retail experience anywhere on the planet is going through self-checkouts in the big retailers in Australia or Tesco's or Sainsbury's or wherever it might be. Um, Not only because it takes jobs away from people, but as you say, it destroys brand experience. Um, And I think that there's a massive rollback on a few of those brands now when they're looking at what they've done with that and, and how they've damaged some of the some of the ways people shop with them. So anyway, sorry, yeah. that's I've gone on a tangent there, <laughs> but I couldn't help myself. So a, a, a call out to all the checkout girls and guys out there still plugging away and doing some proper customer yeah. service. But I think that's what that's what confirms in my mind that these things are important because people when they talk about them, they've got a really strong opinion about it. Yep. It's like delivery. I always used to say at, um, at Misguided, delivery is our our core. You know, wasn't their core weakness, but you know, it's our core weakness because people feel so passionately about it. I've given you some money. I want my stuff. Yeah. And if you're not going to give me my stuff, then I'm going to feel quite strongly about this. So, you know, if you want people to feel good about you, then you've got to take all of those those pain points away. You've got to take all of that disappointment away and just make it as, you know, as, as I don't know, as pleasant as possible, I suppose. Yeah, no, I, I think there are some, some core takeaways from that. Um, what was good marketing 30, 40 years ago before we had all of these technology tools um and 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 digital tools at our hands is still good marketing now but just done in a digital way done in done in a way that's enabled um, and we don't know what the channels coming down the line will be as you said and i think that's one of the huge challenges um for crm teams out there as we wrap up i want to ask you a couple of different questions you're a young marketing executive entering the world of crm retention and loyalty today coming out of university what are the Nicola top tips on things to get au fait with or to, to, to learn and to start to put your knowledge base together so that you can go in and pick up work in amongst some of these great companies and retailers that are out there? What, what would you be looking for in a junior exec at the moment? Okay. So I think the, the first um, sort of elephant in the room really is you don't need to be a data scientist to understand and appreciate data. It it helps, you know, you you naturally need to understand your numbers, you need to understand how you're getting data, but be be humble enough to say, I don't know, but I can apply myself to understanding. Because for me, data is about telling stories. And so for every person who's excellent at mining data and, you know, coding data to come out with an answer, um, we also need people who can then turn that into a story and land it with the people who need to understand 
So then that's the first and foremost. You don't need to be a data scientist to to work in data. I think the second part is really kind of challenging what you think about when you think about loyalty. So we've talked about the Holland and Barrett experience. For me, you know, 12, 15 years ago, I would have said it's all about plastic cards and points. Nowadays, every time somebody talks to me about loyalty, I absolutely categorically disagree that it's anything to do with plastic cards and points. And it's all to do with really understanding what motivates your customer, what annoys your customer, and then really diving into what you can do as a brand to fulfill your role within their life. So um, really kind of challenge your thoughts around and your preconceptions about what loyalty is. Um, And then finally, link to that, start to get really clear on how you measure that. Because like we said before, we're not here for fun, we're here to drive performance. And always my, um, my intention when working with retail teams is to get them a credible seat around the board table. Yeah. We need data to be as valid around that, data, around that board table as sales data. So you've really got to understand if this is how, kind of how I'm valuing loyalty, if these are the things that indicate loyalty from my customers, this is how I'm going to measure that so that I can demonstrate that we are actually moving the needle. We are actually, because otherwise what happens is you just end up being shoehorned into, well, we've got to measure it somehow. So it will be repeat order rate. Yeah. And of course, everybody knows that, you know, if you're selling sofas, that's a pretty hard job. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so yeah, I, I would say that I'd, I'd say, you know, be able to tell stories around data really challenge your thinking about what loyalty means um, and how you can identify it and then really get very specific on how you're going to measure those things so that you can credibly sit and, and justify and demonstrate the value that it's bringing. Yeah, great. I think there's some good tips in there. We feel like we're always accelerating in this industry, um, in the e-commerce industry, in the retail industry. What are your kind of predictions um if you can it's probably pretty difficult given given how quickly everything moves what do you see coming down the pipeline in the next year or two for brands that are going to win um and and be really pushing the envelope or are there anyone out there at the moment that you particularly think they're doing a really good job with their customer experience um with their brand positioning and and you see them as someone that could be succeeded succeeding or someone worthy of copying i imagine will be the thing that most of our listeners will be thinking about um in loyalty or in e-commerce let's go loyalty and we can keep it broad yeah okay so i think it kind of links to what what i was just saying really about the plastic card and the points so we have this opportunity now particularly within loyalty to really use the technology that's available across e-commerce to help us spot loyalty indicators so we we don't need to do that kind of very um, straightforward exchange of you give me some data and I'll give you a reward it doesn't mean that it's worthless within within the suite of things that you might want to do because naturally customers do respond to those sorts of things and it, it resonates with them but I think what I would say are the brands that are going to do well are the brands that spot that they can drive loyal behaviour without having to invest in a loyalty programme. Yep. But really understanding what that means for their brand. So there's, regrettably, and if I could write one, then I might be very rich, <laughs> but um, yeah, there's no blueprint. There's no thing that you can say, implement that and it will drive loyalty. It, it's about really understanding your business, your customers, 
how they respond to you when they don't respond to you and then trying in an error in some things that, that move you towards that so I think it's about understanding that you need sort of really challenge what what loyalty means within your business um, using some of the kind of non-transactional indicators as well so this isn't all about the order it's about um, other things that people do when they love you as a brand um, and and that varies doesn't it I mean you always end up kind of going to the apples of this world which you know yeah. you're trying to avoid cliche you don't want to but what do people do when they when they engage with your brand what other stuff is in their life what's driving them to you as a brand and what do they enjoy and if you can tap into some of that and build in those sorts of communities those common interests between your brand and what your customers do then there are some non-transactional indicators there of them being loyal to you because what you can then do is sort of say well if my customers are interested in this and they spend their time doing this and we as a brand fulfill a role within them doing that thing that they love then all of a sudden there's a connection between the two things and as a brand we're, we're bolted on to their experience and their pleasure in, in doing that thing that they love and I think if you can do that in a way that then allows you to be part of their lives day to day then again that drives some some loyal behaviors so I think that the brands that are going to do well are those that connect into that um, move themselves away from this very you know limited exchange of transactions or points and prizes and actually start to realize that loyalty is about love loyalty is about choosing you over everybody else um, and loyalty is about more than just giving them a discount and as soon as you do that then you you form this part in their life that they, they don't want to be without yeah some unbelievable themes in there um nicola i think you've nailed it on the head in some of the brands that stand out and exactly like you're talking about it's the paradise or the mecca that we want to get to uh, as brands to to drive that love and drive that loyalty sometimes it'll win with some customers um, and sometimes you've got to accept that a few will move on of course and, and and you've got to keep filling your pipeline and everything i want to fire off a last couple of one let's go let's go um one word answers to a couple of different things a fast five or ten one word answer to anything that I yell out here that's relevant to a CRM or branding team. TikTok. Complicated. <laughs> uh, email. Um, still alive. SMS. Expensive. <laughs> Apps. Um, had their day. Yeah, interesting. Facebook. <laughs> um for my mum. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think there'll be many users that would appreciate that. Instagram, I'll go there other products, see if you can give them a positive. Um, Instagram. Um, underused. Yeah. Uh, UPS. <laughs> um, there are other providers. <laughs> yeah, Okay. I wanted to drop that in and just drop in delivery providers. Um, right. And then the very last one, and you can be nice on this, extreme push. <laughs> Relevant. Yeah. Thanks. We'll take that as the plug. Um, no, Nicola, it's been excellent talking to you. I think some great themes coming out here today on, you know, what it means to drive proper loyalty programs, what it means to be a brand in the modern age dealing with, plethora of 
data that comes in from all different areas of the business and being able to use it, utilize that as a marketing function. I want to thank you for taking your time with us today. Uh, I know our listeners will have gotten a lot out of that. If you do want to get in touch with Nicola about any projects, give the podcast a shout and we'll be able to put you in touch for sure. But thank you, Nicola, for your time. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Good to talk to you. Great. Cheers. Thanks for joining us for the Experts in the Room podcast brought to you by Extreme Push. Subscribe now for more episodes in our series. This podcast was produced by Record Media. 